The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. We are going to jump right into the scriptures this morning. So if you have your Bible, would you open to 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel. We are in a series called Binge the Bible because in January, uh, we, I challenged our church family to read the Bible in six months. And so we have been trucking along now for close to 50 days reading through the Bible, six, seven, eight chapters a day, making our way through the Old Testament. And this week we finished 1 Samuel. Today we'll start 2 Samuel. And so there's a message from the Holy Spirit for our church family here in this book. And I'm excited to bring it to you this morning. Before we find God's specific message for us from this book, I wanna just kind of set this up for you. I know not everybody has been reading the Bible in six months. I know a bunch of you started and you're kind of coming in late, coming in hot, and that's okay. Keep it up. It's going to be all right. Um, you have lots more time to do this again and again and again, and so don't feel bad, but uh, stay, stay in it. But we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and we have gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and now we're on 1 Samuel. And in those books, we have heard the storyline, the revelation, the divine revelation of the God who claims to have made all of this of how it got here, why it's here, and what God's doing in it right now. And God gives that to us in the form of a story. It's not detailed in bullet notes. It's a story and it's an unfolding story. And I want to continue to unfold it in the section that we're gonna be in in 1 Samuel. But in order to do that, you have to kind of like catch up a little bit. So God made all of humanity in Genesis. Genesis chapter one, God makes the whole earth, makes the whole universe, makes our solar system, our galaxy, everything that is God made so that he could put humankind on the planet to reflect his image and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that he could have a people for his own possession on the planet. That's where this is going. That's why this is here. He started that with Adam and Eve and he put this blessing on them. Be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy everything in this lush garden for you to eat from except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that one rule gave Adam and Eve an opportunity to trust God when they didn't know what exactly was going on there. Do you see this? Any of you guys have small children at home? Because I said so, that's why. It's too long to explain. Trust mom and dad and do what I say. So Adam and Eve have this whole thing. Well, the, the serpent, God's ancient enemy, part of the previous prehistory of, of the world as it is in the spiritual realm, there's a, an enemy of God. He comes in the form of the certain and he begins to sow seeds of doubt into Eve by asking her questions in a way that put God's character and, and desires and motives into question. And he exploits uh, her ignorance in a couple ways. Ultimately, she distrusts God. She trusts in her own eyes what she sees as being good for food and delightful to the eyes. She distrusts and disobeys God and her husband with her. And this plummets the world into the fall. They are a prototype of every human being, all of us made in God's image with a purpose and a plan and the vestige of what it means to be made in the image of God. And God wants to know us and walk with us in the same way that he did with them. But now there's a hindrance. We have an enemy that's against us. And now we are under part of the curse that this whole creation is under. And so the storyline goes from this Adam and Eve in the garden to God interacting with different people. We get the story of the whole earth being so evil that God decides he's gonna destroy all of humanity. But because he's been faithful, because he has a purpose and a promise, he picks Noah and his family and preserves them on the ark and then repopulates the earth with the same blessing that was on Adam and Eve. And then you get to Abraham. And by the time you get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, everyone's lost knowledge of God. Nobody knows who he is or what's going on. And so God reveals himself to Abraham with the exact 
opposite scenario of what Adam and Eve had. He comes to Abraham and says, I want you to trust me and obey me even though you know nothing. And I'm gonna do a great work for you. I'm gonna give you a people and a land. The, the intention God had for Adam and Eve, come to Abraham and he trusts God and he goes where God sent him. And as he trusted him, the scripture tells us it was counted to him as righteousness. And God begins his dealing with humanity through Abraham. Abraham is told that he's gonna have a son, but he's old and he has no son. And his wife is old and she's barren. But in their old age, God gives them a son, a son of promise, Isaac. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob, who is a twin, the second of two, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is a little, he's just a little snitch. He's a little schemer, deceiver. He's just trying to get in there. In fact, he, he spends his whole life trying to manhandle everything so much and gain control over it that he actually wrestles with God and God changes his name to Israel, contends with God because he contended with both God and man. And Jacob's always trying to get his hands onto everything. Now, God's purposes can't be thwarted and they can't be manipulated. Somebody say amen. And so God is faithful to Israel. He has 12 sons by four women. It got weird. 12 sons become the names of the tribes of the nation of Israel. They go into Egypt because of a famine where God sovereignly saves them through some treachery towards one of those sons, Joseph. And as they enter into Egypt, miraculously, it becomes a kind of incubator for them to go from a family to a nation. And the book of Exodus is about God leading his people, Israel, out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and into the wilderness where they can encounter God, come to know him and have their unbelief and their idolatry purged out of them. That first generation is hard-hearted and God does not allow them to enter this land. And so for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. And then at the end of 40 years, God raises up another leader, Joshua, who leads the people of Israel in a covenant conquest into the land of Canaan to purge out the evil inhabitants that are there and to have for themselves the promise of Abraham. And that's the book of Joshua. And Joshua ends on a high note with the, the people of God flourishing in that area, but two kind of downsides. One is they did not get rid of all the people. Many of them they kept as slave labor and that infiltrated their hearts and minds through idolatry. And secondly, they failed to push to the very limits of the land that God gave them. And they left it inhabited by others. And so by the time you get to Judges, two generations have passed by and those people have been more influenced by the Canaanites who were still in the land of promise than by their covenant God. And so this covenant conquest kind of devolves down into this convoluted chaos where everything is upside down and right side over and you can't make sense of it. And some things sound good and look bad and they look bad and sound good. And you, it's a very confusing book and it ends in an exceedingly dark fashion in chapters 19, 20, and 21 where the whole nation turns on the tribe of Benjamin and almost exterminates the whole tribe till there's only 600 men and no women. And so Benjamin's almost completely eradicated. And so it ends with them stealing women to give them as wives to start over this new tribe of Benjamin. And the, the four-time repeated phrase from Judges, it ends again at the very last verse. It says, uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this anarchy bred this environment for this great evil to take place. And you might be thinking this is a kind of a polemic or a propaganda piece to justify a human king. But the point wasn't a human king. The point was that God was going to be their king. But the Israelites rejected God as their king. And instead they wanted a human king. And this is the disposition the people of God have in this generation in the land of Canaan, mixed in with all these Canaanites and all this oppression from the outside. And this is when Samuel is born. Samuel is kind of the 13th judge 
and the writer of First and Second Samuel. We really should look at First and Second Samuel like one book in two chapters or two parts, but it's, we're going to look at just First Samuel today. And Samuel is born as a miracle. This is a common motif in the scriptures. There's a handful of miracle births. I'm sure you can remember some of them. Uh, we celebrate one of them at Christmas time. Samuel, Samuel was born uh, as a miracle to a woman who was a despised wife of a rival. She had a, there was two wives, one man. I told you it got complicated. And the wife, she was the loved wife and the other wife had all the children. And so she comes and pleads with God at the temple and the Lord answers her prayer. And she promises God that if she conceives a child, that she will give that child to the Lord's, for the Lord's purpose under the Nazarite vow from number six, and he will grow up at the temple. And so she, God answers her prayer. She has a baby, she weans him, and she brings him small little Samuel and dedicates him at the temple. And she leaves him there with the high priest and comes back year after year and visits. And the Lord gives her more sons and daughters. And it's her prayer that I wanna focus in on this morning. And I don't know how far we're gonna get into this. I tried to do a bunch in the first service and it seemed like too much. But I wanna talk about some of the themes that emerge in 1 Samuel. And the reason that I wanna do this is because this is not just the history of Israel. This is not just a history lesson this morning. I know I just gave you a brief synopsis of the history of Israel, but we're not reading the Bible to just know what happened before now. We are reading the Bible because God has revealed himself in the form of a story. Do you know that? And so we need to know the story so we can know the God of the story. It's his story. And what I want you today to experience is a personal connection with the God of his story, the God of history. And that happens when you get to know the details, but the message is so deep. You see, 1 Samuel is gonna tell us about God raising up the prophet Samuel and the way that he interacted as a judge over the people of Israel, how he is used by God to anoint Israel's first unified king, Saul, and how God rejects Saul as king because of some character flaws in him and instead anoints and exalts David to be the king of Egypt are the king of Israel. And David becomes a type of Christ, and in fact, the ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. And so you're getting some pictures here of what a good king looks like and what a bad king looks like. So there's a little compare and contrast that's going on. That's a whole level of this. And you're getting the whole unified story that eventually leads to Jesus. But Samuel's also doing something really, really important and really powerful for every single reader of First and Second Samuel. He is holding out for all of us, as we read, essentially two paths two ways to live your life. You can live your life self-focused, constantly aware of your, of your own happiness, meaning, value, and purpose, which can make you either very brash and arrogant or kind of conversely exceedingly insecure. But in both cases, you are the focus of your existence. And then there's this other path that is one that is lowly of heart and mind and Godward and has God as the as the lead actor in the story of your life, and you at best are gonna get the award for best supporting actor or actress. This is a disposition that requires God to be God and you to be you, which means it requires faith. And what this looks like in, in the outworking of life is a choice between pride on the one hand, self-focus, and humility on the other, a God focus and another's focus. And Samuel very purposely holds out for us these examples in Saul and David of these two different kinds of people. David was not a perfect person. We're gonna see that, especially as he fails big time in 2 Samuel. But even in 1 Samuel, he's not a perfect person, but he is a type 
of a humble person, a person that we can emulate, a person that we have the capacity to, to operate like. And this is the invitation that is for us. And so there is a lot going on in 1 Samuel. And I just wanna draw your attention to this beautiful prayer. It may be a poem or, or it may have been put to music at some point as well, but this is Hannah. Hannah is Samuel's mother. And this is what she prayed when she dropped Samuel as a toddler off at the temple in keeping her vow to God. And here's what it says. 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God, we thank you for these rich, beautiful, and profound words, this prophetic utterance spoken through Hannah. God preserved for us, so compelling that it was valued and preserved in the ancient Near East. And Samuel saw fit to begin his story with these 11 verses. And so God, I just pray this morning that they would speak to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would have ears to hear what you are saying to your church. God, I pray that we would choose this path that requires humility, but leads to fruitfulness, godliness, exaltation, and purpose. God, I pray that you would rescue from the path of pride those who would end in failure and in rejection. God, only you can do this. And so we are here for you. And we have every expectation that you are gonna to speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make this real in each of our hearts and minds, that it would connect to our personal struggle and where we find the temptation, Lord, to pride and independence or insecurity. God, I thank you for this story. I thank you that it leads to Jesus. God, I thank you that it typifies what a good king looks like. Ultimately, we know who he is. And I pray this morning, God, that no one would leave here 
without allegiance in their heart to the one true king. And the, and the steps we need, God, the truth we need to walk toward exaltation through humility. And so we pray, God, that you would speak to us. We're listening. Have your way in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. So I got some middle school students on the front row, which is awesome. We, uh, every Wednesday, we have our, the Well Youth Group, and we gather for an hour and a half. And I love getting to teach the middle school students because they're at a position in their life where making the right choices in terms of their relationship with God and then following after him has an opportunity to, to bear great fruit, doesn't it? Aren't you glad that there, it's never too late for anybody? But have any of you ever looked back and said, I wish I would have got this when I was 13? And so I love teaching the youth. And um, last year I was sharing with them one of my most embarrassing moments ever because middle school is like, it's almost like a certain kind of hell, right? They don't know that because it's just normal for them. But we look back and we go, man, that was rough. Part of it is that we're trying to understand who we are and where we fit in the world. And some of us just exist in a really loving, kind of stable family environment, social environment. And it's just a little, it's just a wonderful little incubator of wonderfulness. But most of us, not so much. Most of us are just flailing through the dysfunction of generations of problem people, aren't we? And so I was sharing with the middle school students what my experience was uh, as a you know, 13, 14 year old and, and how that's kind of shaped my understanding and my walk with the Lord. And I was sharing one of my most embarrassing moments in middle school. So I was like 13 years old and uh, my dad was kind of mechanically inclined and he used to drag me to work and make me work on cars with him. And so um, we fixed lawnmowers and bicycles. And I found that it was a very profitable um, business model in fixing bikes beachside bikes because they rust out so bad. You get a brand new bike for Christmas and by May, none of the, the gears don't shift and the brakes don't work because of that salt air. And so I started fixing bikes for my friends when I was 12 years old. When I was 13, I was out in front of my house, two o'clock in the afternoon, homeschooled, off early. I had my, my bicycle, this bicycle of a buddy of mine who was upside down and I'm oiling it all up and I'm working it out and the brakes were just totally locked up. And uh, so I'm squirting WD-40 in there and squeezing back and forth and trying to get it all the way down through there and getting it all nice and lubed up. And um, so I get it all done and I'm gonna take it for a spin. And at the time, there was this one girl, she lived like four or five blocks away and I knew her name, but we had never met and I'd seen her a couple times and I, n- I never was like bold enough to like introduce myself. So I did that awkward 12-year-old boy thing where I just looked down, <laughs> hoping something would just magically occur without any prompt from me. And never happened. And so I was always thinking like, I want to get it. I want to like have enough courage to like say something to this girl, right? And so I'm fixing this bike and I'm, I pull out of my driveway and onto the road and I look to my left and there she is. And she's on a bike and she's riding down my street by herself. And my heart begins to beat. This is my chance. The chance encounter every romantic comedy begins with. We're, this is it. And I was, I was contemplating my newfound future with this girl. And this was our kind of meet cute. And this was the opportunity. And so I'm riding away from her and I'm considering, okay, I'm going to turn around and then like, what's going to be the move? And what am I going to say? And how are we going to, I'm imagining us stopping and having this conversation standing near our bikes and the whole thing's going to unfold. And as I was imagining this, my legs were processing faster and I started going really fast. And I looked up and she's closing in on me and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going I'm I'm to blow right past her. And I, I go to slow down and those brakes locked right up and I went over the handlebars, boom, right down on the road in front of her, just laying flat on my face. And the bike had done one of these moves where it kind of like didn't know which side to fall. And then it twisted up in my own legs and then spanked me, you know? And so I was just laying there contemplating the misery of my future as a single person. 
missing this one fleeting opportunity to make this eternal connection. And so she just drove right by. She just was like, oh. Should have gone down a different avenue. <gasps> so humiliating. And just typical of middle school. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Unfortunately, that isn't my most embarrassing moment. Because life actually has been a series of me learning the hard way and requiring the painful gift of just utter humiliation. And the more I attempted to maintain control of my own outcomes and specifically the perception that other people had of me, the more I experienced one face plant after the next. And it really wasn't until and isn't until we receive God's gift of humility and step away from making everything about us and walking in a relationship with the God who made us in humble, loving obedience that we actually can begin to walk in a path that leads to exaltation and proclamation and not humiliation. Now we could just hang out and talk about all the ways that I failed, but that doesn't sound fun to me <laughs> at all. And we have Saul and David to talk about. Samuel is a unique figure because he's this kind of pivotal figure that's both a judge of Israel and also a prophet. He's very, very different and distinct in a lot of different ways and God used him powerfully. But the main thing that God used Samuel for was for the appointment of Israel's king. But Israel didn't get one king the first time. God wanted to make sure that Israel got to see the king they wanted and then he showed them the king that they needed or at least the type of one. And so 1 Samuel holds out for us this picture of how God used Samuel to, to identify and appoint the first king of Israel, Saul. And then as we see Saul walk in this kind of self-preoccupied, which that sometimes kind of projects itself as deep insecurity, we're gonna, you saw if you read the book, and then other times just a brash uh, arrogance and uh, a confidence that demeans other people and does crazy things. And that pride can manifest it in either of those ways, in pronounced ways for different people or back and forth. It's very confusing and you see that in Saul. And so in the halfway through the book, God rejects Saul as king. And then he sends Samuel to anoint Israel's next king who happens to be at the time, a kid, a little kid, like a middle school student, who's um, kind of the runt of the family, not very impressive and not even important enough to bring him in when the prophet comes a calling. And so this is who David is. And so I wanna ask you, we're gonna read a few little select passages, but I wanna ask you to consider the condition of your own heart right now. The scriptures, Jesus in his teaching in the gospels talks about our hearts as soil. And the word that is sown, that is when God's word is spoken, read or preached, it goes into our hearts and it goes in like a seed. And what's the question that he asks is what is the condition of the soil of your heart? We sang about God's um, beautiful work by his Holy Spirit that waters, that Jesus said would, would turn into a well on the inside of us that would, that would flow up to living water, that, that he would do this miracle. And so we have everything from God we need. We have the seed and we have the water. We have the light of all mankind, the life of Jesus. The question is, what condition is your heart in? And this is what only you can work with. 
And so there is a big point of application here. And Samuel's really purposeful about presenting this to all of God's people throughout all the time through Saul and David as kind of two ways to live your life. And so we get that in Hannah's prayer because it is so Godward and it encapsulates for us what she calls the pillars of the earth. She's not talking scientifically about the way the earth is. She's not a flat earther, Hannah. She's talking about the way in which the world operates because of the way God set it up. And what, the way it operates is when you, try to, when you try to exalt yourself, you fall. And when you lay down your life, you are lifted up. This is part of the way that God has designed this whole thing to work. And this means he's looking for people who are of lowly heart and mind. These are the people that he wants to use. The reality is, is that Israel didn't need a human king. God was her king. They rejected God as the king of Israel. And they wanted a human king because they wanted to see and they wanted to be like. And this is always the stuff of a lack of faith. I need to be able to see it and it needs to look like what I think it is. And God's saying, no, 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 you don't need to see it. You need the eyes of faith. And you don't need to know what it is. You need to trust in me and let me do it. And we see throughout Samuel that God is perfectly capable of winning all of his own battles without any help from us. Isn't that good news? I love the way that this gets pictured in the story in 1 Samuel 4 and 5 because the Israelites presume upon God. They're not having a relationship with God that's based in faith. They're not asking God, will you deliver us from our enemies? How do you want us to attack this, these people? What's that gonna look like? Instead, they put God in a box, literally. They take the Ark of the Covenant, the God box, and they bring it to the battle thinking that somehow this token appearance of the way in which God had dwelt with his people historically is somehow going to be useful to them in frightening their enemies and winning their battles. And in fact, that was the effect on the Philistines. They were terrified at the fact that they had brought the Ark of the Covenant out because they had heard about the God who had delivered Israel. And that's him essentially in the God box. But listen, God is not something to be manipulated for your purposes. And so when you bring him out and try to use him to accomplish your purposes, prepare for a butt whooping because that's what happened. The Philistines were terrified, but they were still victorious because God was not helping the Israelites use him in arrogance and pride. And so the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And I just love this. They're like, we won. We're going to steal their God. And they take their Israelites God and they put him in their little, little God room where they keep their gods. And their big God, Dagon, was in there. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in there with Dagon. And the next morning when they come back, Dagon is flat on his face, bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. Does God need your help? No. And so they go, oh, this is embarrassing. And they prop their God back up. It's pretty funny when you have to prop up your own God, isn't it? The next day they come back only to find Dagon again on his face. And this time with his head broken, his hands broken, and all of them set on the threshold. Make sure you didn't notice when you came in. You don't have to step over that head and hands to get to your God. And from that point forward, we're told that the, the Philistines never stepped on the threshold again because of the God of Dagon. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant was present in, with the Philistines. And so God started bringing plagues on them just like he had in Egypt. And they're getting tumors and they're getting rats. And they're like, we got to get this thing out of here. So they concoct a plan to, to send the thing back to Israel. And it's so important for us to recognize God doesn't need a king. He doesn't need you. He doesn't. He doesn't he can, God is going to accomplish his purposes with or without you. That is both good and scary news, isn't it? But it's humbling for a second when you go, okay. Because every invitation from God, if he says, I want you to be a part of what I am doing, that's your opportunity. But he's going, this is how it's going to work. You don't call the shots. I do. I'm God and you're my person. 
And so you trust me, you follow me, you let me love you, you let me direct you, you let me reveal myself to you and you just do the thing that I'm asking you to do and watch what happens when you come to God with that lowliness of heart, when that genuineness of faith, when you walk with him, what he does is he just picks you right like a little baby and he puts you in a nice high chair. But if you're gonna come to God lifting up yourself, propping up yourself, I demand, this is my list. If you come to God with a rider, I need the car at 72 degrees. It's gonna cost this much. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm looking for in a God. This is not online dating for a God. If you come to God this way, going down. And this is what we see in Samuel and in David. All right, I'm summarizing a lot of this, but I wanna give you some of the actual texts, okay? And, and it's hard because sometimes pride looks like humility. Have you, ever, have you ever heard anybody have humble speak? Have you ever had just somebody that you know is just really, really self-focused and they just say things that are like uber humble sounding? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And their face is like, I'm better than you. You ever had that? You ever had that? See, Saul was like this too, because Samuel goes to anoint him as king and they have this divine interaction. And Saul says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Nearly extinct, remember? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And sometimes people who are so self-focused, they're either nothing or they're everything, as long as we're talking about them. As long as they are the main topic of conversation, we can talk about how bad I am or how good I am. We can talk about how hard it is for me or how easy it is for me. We can talk about how blessed I am or how oppressed I am, as long as we're talking about me. That's all that really matters. You see that? And this is the epitome of who King Saul is. And so he goes from being this little nobody. In fact, when it's time to inaugurate him, even though the spirit of God has fallen on him, even though God gave him a new heart and called him, was anointed as king, when it's time to announce him in his inauguration, he's hiding. He has stage fright. I can't do it. Can't go out there. It's too much pressure. But then we're gonna see him after a number of years. He's trying to kill David, who's 100% supportive of him. He has nothing to fear because of his deep, deep, deep insecurity. And so this is a picture that you get from the contrast between Saul and David. This happens again in chapter 15. So what happens is that um, Saul is rejected by God specifically because he failed to obey God. So there's this battle with the Amalekites and the Amalekites are that tribe that attacked the Israelites coming out of the wilderness. They're like harassing them and attacking them and God's like, nah, uh And so there was a curse put on it. Amalek and the descendants of Amalek, and it was never fulfilled. No, none of the other leaders ever put the Amalekites out. And so God says, all right, you're king. Number one job is you're gonna put the Amalekites out. And so Saul goes out there, he leads the army, they defeat the Amalekites, but instead of doing exactly what God did, he decided to keep the king for himself. Instead of killing the king, he keeps the king. Because if you are a, if you are a conquering nation who can keep a king, that means you are super powerful in battle and have the opportunity to leverage with other kings. And so keeping kings is something that says, I am something special. Anybody can kill a king in a battle. Only special people can conquer a kingdom and then save that king for themselves. And so Saul decided to keep King Agag for himself. And God said, nah, he also let all of his people keep all of the best of the spoils for more instead of putting it complete destruction like God had said. And then when he's confronted, he goes, I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything God said. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And I was gonna sacrifice all these things to the Lord. And he just does the me, 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 me show all day long in chapter 15. And then finally, when he agrees that he had done something wrong, I have sinned, I have transgressed because I feared the people. I obeyed their voice, the blame shifting. Remember this from Genesis? So please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel says, I'm not going anywhere with you. He says, please come with me. And then he says, okay, leave me forever, but at least show up so the people think that I'm good. 
So he's doing, he's doing public relations for himself and, and collateral damage, damage control. And so you're getting a picture of Saul. And then Saul goes totally crazy. He tries to kill David over and over and over again. And David will not take vengeance on Saul, even though he has opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Why? Because he is disposed towards the Lord to trust and God chose Saul and David will not oppose God. This is not about David. It's not about Saul. It's about who God is and the disposition that David has before God. Listen, David was told he was gonna be king when he was 12, but he didn't do like Joseph and go tell all his brothers, oh, I had a dream, I had a vision, I had a word, and now I'm gonna be something special. He just went back to work, feeding sheep for a long time. And then God brings their paths together and David becomes the musician in the palace to calm Saul's mind when he was tormented by an evil spirit that the Lord sent. That'll be an interesting podcast for us to talk about. And there's this, this gap of time where Saul is still the king, but he's been rejected by God. And David's anointed as king, but he's not stepping into that kingdom. And you're watching to see how Saul behaves and how David behaves. And that's what this whole second half of the book of 1 Samuel is all about. Why is that gap there? Do you guys read the book? Did you read it and go, what is going on here? Why can't we just get rid of the bad guy and bring in the good guy? And the reason is, is that God always creates an opportunity of testing for you to exercise faith towards God. You can't have genuine humility when everything goes your way immediately, can you? That's putting God back in a box, isn't it? And so David spends years on the run and on the hunt and he loses things. He loses a what? His first wife. He loses, I mean, he's attacked. He is betrayed. He loses his best friend. He, but he's living his life toward God. And a dozen or more of the Psalms that we cherish came from David living in that period of time and putting his faith and trust in Jesus, the king who was to come, the king and the anointed one in the last verse of Hannah's song. And so these pictures emerge over and over and over between, say, David and Saul. And it's beautiful literary balance when Saul is trying to get Samuel to come stand up for him in front of the people. He's begging Samuel, no, you have to come. And he tears his robe. And then when Saul is hunting David and he's sneaking off into a cave for a number two, a cave David already happens to be in and David sneaks up behind him and has an opportunity to kill him, but instead cuts off a piece of his robe. You see these pictures. I don't know if you know this or not, but cutting off a piece of somebody's robe was a way of saying, you're dead to me, you're nothing to me. So here's Saul using it to maintain control. And here's David using it to say, I'm relinquishing control because it's not about you. I'm not afraid of you, but I'm not bowing down to you. I'm serving the one true God. And so you get these two pictures of humility and pride. And then the choice is literally yours. Now, David is not a perfect person and he's gonna mess up. He's gonna mess up in 1 Samuel. He's gonna mess up in 2 Samuel. Ultimately, he's gonna be rejected by God and his son Solomon is gonna be the one to build the temple. But David is what the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. And it's his direct descendant, Jesus, who becomes the king that Hannah's song ends with, that God will establish his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. It is not about how you choose to interact with God or other people that has anything to do with your salvation. This is really good news, by the way. Saul was given a new heart. The spirit of God came on him. He multiple times was prophesying with the prophets to the where people were saying, is, is our king also a prophet? This is very interesting. He was used by God to establish 
um, the purposes of God in his generation, but ultimately he was rejected and it was because of his self-focused pride and unwillingness to be humbled before who God really was. He was too afraid of letting go of control. And that's the temptation every one of us face every single day. And all of us are in a little period of testing in some way, shape or form. Every single one of us is in a, living a life between where you'd like to be and where you are. And in that gap is your opportunity to cultivate your own heart towards God. And my question for you is, how are you going to move forward? Are you going to move forward looking for the tools of manipulation and control, making everything about you, throwing people aside, people who are faithful, throwing a spear at them, trying to make sure that there is no threat to your future happiness? Or are you like David, gonna be bowing your knees before the Lord and holding out your hands and saying, whatever your will is, I'm working towards that. Whatever that looks like for me, that's where I'll go. Whatever it costs of me, that's what I'm willing to walk in. Now, David did that and it was hard, but it was not David that gives us hope. It was Jesus. Philippians chapter two. We are compelled by the apostle Paul to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's the pride being focused on ourselves, but in humility to count other people as more significant than us. What does it feel like to be them? What are their needs? How can I meet their needs? How can I be a friend to that person? How can I be an encouragement to other people? Taking my eyes off of me, putting it on God and others. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, which all of us are pretty good at, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's coming because of who our King Jesus is. He went all the way down, 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 and was therefore exalted all the way up, 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 up. And inasmuch as we receive him and the seed of his word finds ripe soil in our hearts and his spirit washes over us, then we will grow and flourish in a life that looks like God-centered, humble love because there is grace for the humble. But even having received that grace, like Saul, we can be God's person. We can be given an opportunity. We can have a new heart. We can have God's spirit resting on us, but we can make it all about us. And we can oscillate and jump back and forth from, from wicked insecurity over to brash manipulation and pull out the claws of control. We can try to manage all of our relationships and our perceptions of other people. We can try to control outcomes. We can be tormented day and night trying to get this done. And it, it could mean that God finds somebody else to do it the Jesus way. And so I'm just pleading with you. There is no reason why you can't experience every bit of God's eternal life in Jesus right now. And even if you stay a screw up for the rest of your life, God will welcome you home. Isn't that good news? But he wants to work with you and he wants to work through you and he wants to work in you. And that means you gotta ask a question about the condition of your soul. Am I more concerned with things going my way or am I gonna be fixated on the, the God who made me? Hannah put her emphasis on the Lord. And God not only answered her prayer, but through her faithfulness, God raised up a prophet there at 
There had not been one like that before. God wants to do the same thing in your life in a million ways that I couldn't begin to understand or describe. And the question is, will you come to Jesus who came all the way to you? Will you put your trust in him? Will you put your faith in him? Will you choose to walk in a way like he walked, humbling yourself and giving yourself entirely over to God's purposes? There is no end, not only to the eternal blessing that God can bestow on you in Christ Jesus in this moment. Doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what your promises are. God will save you on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, not your own. Amen? But now you are being invited into something that happens today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and in your whole life and in your family and in your business and in this generation that can be transformative because God hasn't stopped working. He's going to accomplish his purpose. The question is, will you be a part of it? And so my invitation to you is identify where that pride exists. Just call it out. You don't have to tell me. I, I know I have enough trouble of my own, okay? I don't need to hear about yours. But have an honest conversation and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And if you need to have a little humble session, now's a great time to get up and just leave your pride baggage at church. And so we're gonna close just with a, a moment of reflection. And I'm just gonna ask you to have a genuine conversation with the Lord. For maybe some of you, that means I'm putting my trust in Jesus for the very first time and I'm asking for the forgiveness of my sins. And if that's you, I wanna invite you to make that decision and get out of your seat and come right down here. And some of us are here and we have just been hung up on ourselves. We're our favorite person. When we're either the center, the center actor in our romantic comedy or in our epic tragedy, but it's just about me. And God wants to set us free from me. Amen. And so I need that. And I'm going to be right here and I'm going to invite you to join us. But let me pray for us. God, your, your spirit is the only one who can really speak. God, I can't speak on anybody else's behalf of my own. I don't know what anybody's looking at, what they're facing, how they're feeling, but you do. So I just, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak right to our hearts. God, I pray that where there is the presence of pride, whether that's arrogance or insecurity, God, I just pray that you would point that out to us so that we can repent of it and turn to you. So we can experience all the goodness that you wanna lead us in and be useful to you in all the ways that you wanna work in our lives. And so Lord, I just pray right now that your spirit would convict in, in our hearts. And I pray God for anybody in this room who doesn't know you, who hasn't received your gift of salvation through Jesus. God, I pray they would just be overwhelmed with the reality that you love them enough to do everything to save them. And there's nothing that they need to do except to receive, to receive this gift and to take it. And if, if they're ready for that, if they're believing you for that, God, I pray that they would have the boldness to come up to the front of this room and just have a private conversation with you. They would just say, God, I'm a sinner. I have messed this up. This has been all about me. Please forgive me. Make me yours, and I give my life to you. Those simple words or something like them is enough. So God, I just pray that you would move in our hearts and in this room, in Jesus' name.